and welcome to Food to Go, a podcast brought to you by New Food magazine. My name is Bethan Grills and I'm the editor of New Food. And as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by my assistant editor, Joshua Minchin. Happy New Year, Josh. Happy New Year, Beth. How are you doing? We are 13 days into January, though it feels like it's six weeks long this month already. But I'm sure I'm considering by hearing your voice on the airwaves this morning. Happy New Year. Oh, thank you very much, Josh. You too. Well, aside from our two esteemed guests that we have coming up, and also, you know, ourselves, Josh, very important to mention that. Very esteemed. Yes, yes, very esteemed. We're also joined by a brand new member of the new food team. Abby, welcome. Thank you, Beth. It's great to be here and Happy New Year to you both as well. Oh, look, we're such a friendly team. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're delighted to have you involved today, Abby, as we tackle this important and tricky topic, which is veganism. It's January, as Josh mentioned, which means it's also Veganuary, a campaign in which people are encouraged to go vegan for a month. It's been growing in popularity recently, uh, particularly as sustainability becomes a more prominent topic. So today we're asking meat or vegan, which is more sustainable? That's right, Beth. It's no secret, is it, that the food industry is a big polluter. The United Nations reckons that the food system emissions were estimated at 18 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide in 2015. That's 34% of total global emissions. That is down from 44% in 1990, to be fair, but nevertheless, it's, it's pretty clear that the industry has got a big role to play in the journey to net zero that everybody is on. Adopting a vegan diet has been described by some as the best thing we can do really to save the planet but how much weight does this claim hold if that's what we're asking today yeah well to find out as usual we're calling on the expertise of two leaders within the food industry first up is louisiana waring senior insight and policy officer at the vegan society yeah good morning everyone it's great to be here today Oh, thank you so much for joining us so uh louisiana i want to start this interview off by asking Is a vegan diet more sustainable than a meat-based one? That is a great question to start with. And as you know, the question is not a simple yes or no answer, but ultimately the answer is yes. So I want to start by saying that each person's diet is very different, whether you're vegan or not. But one thing that we all have in common, and actually the vast majority of people have in common, is that we all eat vegan food. We all eat fruit, we all eat vegetables, nuts, grains, cereals, and so on. So in that sense, I would say that there might be very few people who would describe their diets as meat-based, as it's likely that much of your average plate is already taken up by vegan food. Even if that happens to be frozen chips, bread, it's still vegan. So that's a really important distinction to make when we're talking about vegan diets. Secondly, most people following a vegan diet have a solid foundation of whole foods or really simple foods, such as pasta, beans, lentils, etc. And then in the last few years, we've been lucky enough to be able to enjoy the vast amount of vegan food and drink innovation, which is happening globally, but really being led by the UK. So vegan burgers, sausages, vegan cheese, etc. But thousands of people have led vegan lives before this. And thousands live vegan lives now without these products. So yes, vegan diets include alternatives to meat, dairy, eggs, but this is just a small part of the total diet, which is a really important uh, distinction to begin with. Now, there are many different factors to account for when we're talking about food and sustainability. 
Firstly, we're aware that the facts and figures will differ depending on animal species and country to country. But overall, animal agriculture simply uses more resources than it gives back to us. And can you explain that in more detail? Yes. So there's an Oxford University study from 2018 that looks into this. It's the most comprehensive analysis to date of the damage farming does to the planet. It looks at 40,000 farms in 119 countries and covers 40 food products that represent 90% of all food that is eaten. I mean, even that's incredible, really, that 40 food products account for 90% of food that's eaten, considering there's over 200,000 edible plants on the planet. Yeah. But anyway, um, this study found that avoiding meat and dairy is the single biggest way to reduce your impact on Earth, as animal farming provides 18% of calories, but takes up 80% of our global farmlands. And I'll cover some of the reasons why this is. There's between 7 to 8 billion people on the planet and 10 times more farmed animals. So, of course, it's hard to estimate, but around 70 billion farmed animals globally And I won't go into the lived reality of these animals. What's important for this conversation today is that these 70 billion animals, they need feeding, they need to drink, and they need to live. Well, even if these lives are short, they take up vast amounts of resources and produce vast amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. So let's start with the food because farmed animals need to eat. We know that soy production is contributing to deforestation of the Amazon rainforest, both directly through forest clearing for new farms and through cattle ranching. Well, on a global level, 75% of the overall soy production is not for human consumption. It's used for animal feed. I know. So it's mostly for cows and chickens. And there's extensive work and investigations from WWF and Greenpeace that look into this in more detail. It's really shocking when you look into these investigations. I really recommend doing so. So to put this simply, growing crops to feed animals, which we then slaughter to feed ourselves, is a hugely inefficient way to produce food, let alone in a world where billions of people are nutritionally deprived. On average, farmed animals literally consume more food than they give back to us in terms of calories. So farmed animals also need to drink. The whole agricultural system takes up 80% of our global fresh water use, and around a third of this relates directly to animal products. We've been living through a freshwater crisis for a number of years, and one of the quickest ways to solve this is to stop our reliance on animal proteins. And, of course, all of these animals eating and drinking produce vast amounts of waste. Farmed cows in the UK produce 36 million tonnes of waste annually. A lot of this is very concentrated, and this releases methane and ammonia into the atmosphere and is a big risk to water pollution. And then, of course, this takes up a lot of space. So around 80% of the world's farmland and 85% of the farmland in the UK is used to graze farmed animals or to produce crops they feed. These are facts from peer-reviewed studies. The FAO themselves say that the global animal agricultural industry contributes around 18% to total greenhouse gas emissions. And for the agricultural sector alone, farmed animals contribute nearly 80% of all emissions. Again, these are facts on the FAO, and in fact, other pieces of published research put these figures as even higher. So there's many different ways to analyse the carbon footprint of foods, and I'm not a carbon analyst, but it's undeniable that foods like beans, peas, lentils, oats, they all have a very low environmental impact. And brands who produce meat and dairy alternatives 
are becoming increasingly transparent about their environmental credentials, with companies like Corn and Oatly now providing on-packed eco-labelling to help consumers make informed decisions. So what I want to finish by saying, because this does come up from time to time, is that even the most environmentally damaging plant milk, which is almond milk, is still better for the planet than cow's milk. You can always make more environmentally friendly choices, even as a vegan. So personally, I drink pea milk, which I know might sound a bit strange, but (laughs) I personally find it really tasty, but also it's really environmentally friendly. I haven't managed to convince many people to switch over to pea milk, but I do recommend trying it if if you like plant milk. Louisiana, I drink and I love it, oat milk. I'm an avid oat milk drinker because I am. I, I have IBS, which I think I've announced on this podcast so many times. And mm-hmm. probably our audience is like, Beth, stop telling us about your gut. But oat milk is the, you know, I find it great. I, I love it in my coffee. Yeah. Um, and particularly now they've made the barista stuff, so you can you can froth it up. And it's, you yeah. know, it's a really great alternative. I think it was interesting you mentioning about the eco-labelling because they are trying to persuade people to do that because it's very difficult to measure at the minute but as you said you know there are people that have done it so on the the brand of oat milk um that I purchased they do showcase their numbers and it would be great if they can sort of find a way to easily measure these sort of things and start putting it on packaging Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, the other thing I want to say, Louisiana, is, you know, some really interesting statistics there. And I did not know that about soy. So really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, Beth, we should be more honest with our guests in the future. In our prep session, as we do for all of our podcast episodes, we reassure our guests, don't worry, it's nice and relaxed, don't worry. And then, bang, Beth's in straight away. Is being <laughs> is a more sustainable Louisiana. Show you're working. Taking no prisoners at all. But no, yes, really good points. I will, however, provide a bit of cynicism, as I always do. Let's just pretend that the world does turn vegan tomorrow and we all switch to a vegan diet. The only worry that that I have and that other people have is that certain communities are just not going to be able to support themselves. So there's communities in parts of the world that are centred around farming. It's their way of life. It's, It's how they sustain themselves. You can argue the same about fishing communities in parts of the world. Is there a risk that we alienate and even even destroy certain communities if if we do turn vegan? Yeah, so the world going vegan would definitely be a, a gradual transition. And I think it would be very unlikely for, for us to wake up and the world is vegan. But but either way, the vegan society knows that farming is more than a job. It is hugely tied to a person's identity and often their heritage. So we know that it, it's, it's a tough industry to be in. And we don't want to polarise the situation by adding to a vegan against farmers narrative. That isn't the case at all. And, you know, farmers grow vegan food as well. And we have a huge respect for the people that do that. So the Vegan Society has a fairly long running campaign called Grow Green, where we work to help farmers transition from animal farming to plant based agriculture. And of course, this isn't a straightforward process, but we work to facilitate this and speak with government to see if they can offer financial incentives or assistance for farmers who want to move away from livestock. A few years ago, we worked with an ex-beef farmer called Jay Wild, who wanted to stop farming his cows and use his farm for something else. And we helped to move his cows to an animal shelter, and he now uses his farm to grow oats. And this is a great business opportunity, as what we, you know, exactly what we were just saying, the oat milk market is booming. It's the most drunk plant milk in the UK. And people do enjoy spending money with local suppliers. So I really recommend watching a documentary called 73 Cows, which is all about Jay Wild's experience 
of transition from beef farming um, into, you know, moving his cows into an animal shelter. It's, it's really moving, no matter what perspective you're coming from, whether you're a vegan or not. There's also a Scottish NGO called Farmers for Stock Free Farming, and they work with farmers who, again, want to move away from animal farming and into vegan farming, and they're seeing a lot of success with this. The great thing is that in the UK, we have good conditions for growing plant proteins for direct human consumption, such as fava beans, peas, hemp seed. So we support farmers. And, and we're a big fan of a company called Podmodods. They supply a huge variety of British growing products, such as fava beans, lentils, quinoa, hemp, etc. And they work with farmers uh, to grow the first ever commercial crop of British chickpeas just a few years ago. And they also sell British baked beans. And I know that might not sound that impressive, but it is because the UK is the largest consumer of baked beans worldwide by quite a long shot. We eat two million cans of baked beans every day, but we don't grow any baked beans in the UK. So what Honmadods have done is they swap the traditional haricot beans that the likes of High News for British grown fava beans. And there you have it, a British grown baked bean. Now, imagine the opportunities for farmers if we can start to grow haricot beans in the UK or if other baked bean brands started to use British grown fava beans. So it's not all about meat, dairy, fish and eggs. Seemingly small things like baked beans, they can really make a big difference. And I'll stop talking about baked beans now, but, you know, that's just something which gets me excited. But I just want to end the question by saying that as I'm sure you know, uh, in the last few years, Henry Dimbleby was tasked to update the national food strategy for the first time in 70 years. This was published last year. And within this, he explicitly states that developing and manufacturing alternative proteins in the UK, rather than importing them, would create around 10,000 new factory jobs and 6,500 new jobs in farming to produce protein crops and other inputs. And that's quite a statement and shows that growing and producing more vegan food can be good for farming, good for the economy, and as well as having great health and environmental benefits. I think you mentioned, you know, the world tomorrow won't go vegan. I think that, I can imagine that being some sort of film. (laughs) (laughs) What would the world be like? It would be really interesting, wouldn't it, just to see, you know, what would happen if the world would go vegan. Um, It was a shame. I I often wish I had a crystal ball to to see these things. Um, Going on to the, the, the topic of methane, you mentioned it earlier. Why do you think the methane reduction targets that have been set at COP26 are disappointing? Yeah, so to start with, much of the UK's agricultural emissions are not CO2, but methane from ruminant animals. And it's very fair to say that food needs to be higher on the climate agenda There was some headway with this uh, at Glasgow, with the Glasgow breakthroughs finally recognising agriculture as a key emitting sector. But the damage caused by methane emissions from the sector was largely ignored throughout the COP26 conference. The Global Methane Pledge, in which 100 countries committed to a 30% reduction, was a welcome announcement, but there was nothing to address livestock as a key driver in emissions. There was so much focus on other emitting sectors like oil and gas, and yet policies which support a shift in diet failed to get acknowledged. It's clear that there is a lot of progress which needs to be made, and instead of focusing on unproven technology to meet our climate obligations, we need to start addressing and investing in pathways that allow farmers to transition away from animal agriculture 
and start targeting methane as a collective issue instead of taking on a selective approach, given the significant contribution that livestock make. Time is running out on this, and we need to bring methane emissions down substantially and quickly. And quite frankly, proposing to reduce it by 30% just isn't enough. If we don't set stronger targets or clearer pathways to achieve them, this will cost future generations dearly. So we're not lacking in solutions to address food and agriculture, but it's just that there's still so much reluctance to have the conversation in the first place. But the vegan society is not going anywhere and we are ready to engage with government and decision makers as soon as they're ready to have a conversation. This is going to seem like it's just good cop, bad cop, Louisiana, because Beth gets all the all the supportive questions and I turn up with the big cynical <laughs> rebuttals. That isn't the case. You mentioned some, some really important points there. and We do have to do more. I think everyone accepts that. And as an industry, we know that we've got a lot of ground to make up if we are going to um, create a world that is livable for future generations. Mm-hmm. The only hesitation that I have, do you think there's a tendency to villainise the agricultural sector in, in the fight against climate change do you think it's a it's an easy target to go after i mean for example food waste is is huge contributor to to carbon emissions yeah you're absolutely right and villainizing anyone isn't going to help you know we're all we're all on this planet together and climate change is going to affect every single one of us um whether we like it or not you know whether i'm a vegan or not vegan climate change will still affect me so we all really need to be working together so our food system is so complex and it's really broken as you say food waste is a huge problem third world food is wasted globally yet millions of people suffer from hunger how can this be it almost seems impossible to imagine that this is happening you know which yeah as i say this is why we need to work together As I've said already, farming is a really hard job and absolutely essential to everyone's lives on this planet. Food contributes an enormous amount to the UK economy, but farmers see just a fraction of this. And this disconnect between what farmers do and their financial return and food's role towards public health is really symptomatic of the broken system that we have. But it is possible to change the way that we farm in the UK and globally. So we published a report last year called Planting Value in the Food System, where we propose new legislation to enable farmers to transition away from animal farming. It's one of the largest pieces of work we've ever undertaken and was inspired by conversation with farmers and others in the food industry so that we could really understand the challenges that they face. And I really recommend reading this if you're interested in how policy and food interconnect. And as well as this, there's a study from uh, by Harvard, which found that if the UK returned meat, dairy and egg farms back to forest and grew crops for direct human consumption, we would still be able to sustain human calorie and protein needs. So the start progress is being made. We just need more willingness from the industry and government to engage. But back to the question, there might be a tendency to villainise certain sectors, but this, this doesn't really help us to solve the issue. I think that it was really lovely what you just said there about you actually working with farmers. I think that's the answer. You know, you said we are all on this planet together. We're all facing the same issues and it's going to be about working as a team. You know, even if we do have slightly different views, there's got to be a sort of harmonised solution, surely. Mm -hmm. Um, So from your perspective, Louisiana, can there ever be a place for animal based food, even as a luxury? So a bit of a shorter answer from me here, um, because in countries like the UK and many parts of the world, 
we have an abundance of vegan foods on offer so i don't think that is a place for animal based foods even as a luxury veganism is not about improving animal welfare the an animal's right to a long and happy life is the bare minimum that an animal should have veganism is about animal rights it's knowing that animals exist with us not for us so there's a big difference between animal welfare and animal rights i think the term animal rights is more polarizing which is why it's probably used less but it is the foundation as to what veganism is built on and so in my opinion no there isn't a place for animal-based foods and you've led on to the next question brilliantly there louisiana it's almost as if we've prepared for this um <laughs> and i'm fascinated to hear your answer on this because this it's is a polarizing issue as well so where does the vegan society stand on on cultivated meat or cultured meat cellular meat whatever you want to call it and, and insect produce for example both of which have the potential to be highly sustainable sources of food for for for, for the world. It is animal based produce still, but would the vegan society accept cultured meat as a, as a solution, or like I said, or insect insect produce? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with insect based foods. Um, they will never be vegan, and we'll, we won't ever change our stance on this. I find insect based foods quite fascinating because there's a few brands working in this field and a few different products came to market a few years ago. I saw, you know, a few kind of snack bars or protein powders at different food shows. And at the time, there was a fair amount of interest, which was primarily down to their environmental credentials, as you say. But I don't think shoppers will ever be convinced. And I'm fairly certain that no major retailer stocks products made from insects. Considering they've been around for a few years, this shows that uptake has been very slow amongst consumers. Um, the debates around lab-grown meat are slightly more complex because it's something which is completely new to the world. So there's research that shows that growing lab-grown meat is 90% less resource-intensive than livestock. But at present, the process still uses animal starter cells or growth mediums that contain animal products, so the product's not vegan. But I want to note that while the production of cultivated meat could be a good mitigator to improve animal welfare, it still maintains the notion that eating meat is necessary. But we know this is not the case. We simply do not need meat in our diet, whether that's from a slaughtered animal or otherwise. Around a billion dollars has been invested into this industry. Imagine what we could have done with that money if we focus on purely vegan farming. We can help farmers transition away from animal farming. We could fund research for plant protein crops and how to boost their yields. We could build national manufacturing facilities for vegan products. All of this would help to increase the consumption of plants, decrease the consumption of animal products, decrease associated costs with vegan diets, and really normalizes a food culture that doesn't rely on animal proteins. So, as I say, it could be a good mitigator for animal welfare, but it isn't vegan. But we do keep an eye on the industry just to see what's going on. But I'm not convinced that uh, consumers would be convinced either. But I am interested to see what will happen in the future. Just my very last question from me, Louisiana, before we uh, before we let you go. You mentioned that it is possible to exist on a wholly vegan diet, and and that is true. It certainly is. It does, however, take more imagination, takes more research, takes more work, and in some parts of the world requires more more money mm-hmm. do you think that claim holds true across the globe do you think that it's possible to wipe out meat from diets for for humankind rather than just in rich countries yes yeah, so this is a really broad question and 
I'll start by talking about the UK, as this will help to put everything into context. So the UK is one of the richest countries in the world, but we have huge discrepancies in food security and access to good nutrition. Many people live in cities and are really disconnected to where their food comes from. Many people work long hours and can't focus on their nutrition. Many people don't have what we would consider basic cooking facilities like freezers and ovens. And many people in the UK use food banks. So it's so important to think about these things and more when we're thinking about food nutrition, food affordability, and of course, this relates to a vegan diet. This is why vegan innovation is so important, because vegan diets, they shouldn't be for a certain person. They need to offer something to everyone if we want to increase their uptake. But we're really, really lucky in the UK with the availability of foods we have, yet some may still struggle with the associated cost of a vegan diet. And, you know, there's so many different reasons for this. But to put some examples out there, a litre of cow's milk costs the same as a litre of water in the supermarket. And this is because the dairy industry is subsidised with taxpayers' money. It's very difficult for the plant milk industry to compete with these prices as the plant milk industry isn't subsidised. In the same line of thinking, a whole chicken can cost £2. You can get 20 chicken wins for a pound. And this is because the meat industry is subsidised with taxpayers' money. How can the vegan protein industry compete with these prices when it is not subsidised in the same way? And this is where it gets so complex because the true cost of food is not reflected in the price. This isn't just relation in relation to the money that customers pay. It relates to the environmental costs that food have and the health costs that food have. And this is why it's important to be open-minded when we're talking about veganism because not everyone has the same access to food as others. And of course, this relates to a global aspect as well. And it's really difficult to get reliable data on the uptake of vegan diets in many countries. In some countries, there's simply no information available. So it would be naive for me to say that a vegan diet is possible for everyone across the world at this moment in time. But what I would say is that the Global North have responsibility to show leadership by shifting our diets because we're able to. This is why we engage policymakers to facilitate the shift. We've already put vastly more than our fair share of greenhouse gas emissions into the Earth's atmosphere. So it's our time to take responsibility for that. As I've already said, you know, climate change affects every single person on this planet. And if we have the, the ability to reduce our own personal greenhouse gas emissions through our diet, then we absolutely should. Louisiana, thank you so much for your time and, and your insight. Really, really interesting conversation to have and you've raised some brilliant points that I'm sure our listeners will uh, be discussing at home. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, looking forward to speaking to you soon. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Some really good points raised there by Louisiana. I certainly learned a lot. I mean, some of the stats and the research that Louisiana was quoting at, at the beginning of the interview, I, I found absolutely fascinating. Beth, Beth, what did you think? I know. I didn't, I, as I said during the interview, did not know that about soy at all i mean i obviously knew about soy you know being a big thing about you know deforestation but yeah she had some really interesting stats and it was quite really you know quite fascinating to find out a little bit more and just hear you know from the the vegan point of view i suppose abby is probably the most qualified to give a comment here um not being vegan although i think you've dabbled in it but obviously being a vegetarian mm -hmm. yeah so I, I was the exact same as you guys. Like some of the stats were, were astounding. I didn't know a lot of the things that previously before Louisiana informed me. And it was actually amazing. And I just love some of the quotes that she was sharing as well. Like how 
animals live with us but they don't live for us like they're not there just for us to kind of use and like some of those quotes honestly it, it was really informative absolutely it really was and, and, and another perla that she came up with was uh it's we all live on the same planet and it's such a simple thing to say that was a really profound comment and i mean that fed into the conversation about working with industry rather than against it and i think that's such an important point isn't it among sort of the the, the vegan movement and we do need to bring people along for the ride. You can't just tell people what they should and shouldn't be doing because ultimately people that do farm the land and have been for centuries will, will be switched off by that. You do have to, to get involved and work with them and work out what's possible and how we can improve things together. So um, really, really encouraging to hear that. And as well, the conversation around cultured meat and insect protein was fascinating. That's something that I've I've kind of had in the back of my mind for a while. Whenever we cover something to do with cellular agriculture or with, with insect produce, I always think, oh, I wonder how this is going to go down in 10, 15 years' time if it is sort of available on a wide scale. Is it going to be suitable for vegans? Would vegans touch it? And that kind of thing. So really, really interesting debate to be had there as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't surprised by her thoughts on insects, but and what was interesting was that she was saying you know vegan isn't being vegan isn't about welfare it's about animal rights and I thought that was interesting because I've actually I suppose and maybe naively not really thought about it in that way but she's totally right you know being vegan is about the rights of an animal rather than going well we're still going to slaughter animals for food but we're going to do it nicely so that's that's really interesting and I suppose obviously they've got the, the same attitude goes towards insects because insects you know they're you know they're not like a, a you know a cat or a dog but they're still a living you know I'm gonna say animal they're not insect I can't think of another word <laughs> but you know and so that was really interesting however you know I think that insects do have just going on to the other side of things insects do have a really interesting place in the future of food because they are so sustainable like one of the most sustainable food sources because they don't need so much land they don't they need hardly any water I can't Josh I can't be very impressive in, in real off stats on this occasion <laughs> on the top of my head but there are stats that I've you know I have read in the past that I'm just kind of startled by how sustainable they are the only problem is going to be obviously the, the consumer's acceptance in western society because people aren't really going to want to eat well i mean crickets because that's not what we're used to abby as a vegetarian would you ever eat an insect no i wouldn't because for me i'm the same as i think what you mentioned what louisiana said about they're still living beings at the end of the day and i know josh might have something completely different to say about this but <laughs> I, I am someone who won't even kill a spider if i see one in my house like i i, I just can't i mean charlotte's web anyone no but like oh wanna, yeah yeah so <laughs> I, I i would never eat a bug and another thing that as well as sustainability i think she was talking about how i think this is a conversation that the three of us have had about the the cost of eating meat like the difference between eating healthy food and eating like the cost the different the different um prices that all of these things are and she was talking about how meat is subsidized by tax while like vegan food um isn't and that's why it costs more so that that also opened my eyes that made me see why we pay more for certain things and and it makes sense in that sense as well so that's another really interesting thing that I think I learned from her as well do you guys want me to throw some stats out there because I've got some interesting ones go for it Beth okay okay 
Right, ready? <laughs> so there is a study um, that's been done by um, a snack and superfood brand, Nature's Heart, and they surveyed, it is just a, uh, a British study, they surveyed 2,000 Brits, and they were kind of looking at why Brits struggle to maintain a vegan diet during January, the January. Um, one of the things was, so it says, Brits are determined to ditch meaty crisps, ice creams and cake for the January. But can you guess what it is they're struggling not like to give like to give up? Any guesses? I don't know. Yeah, sausages, milk. Milk. It is cheese and chicken. chicken. I can definitely get okay, on board with cheese. cheese. Yeah, cheese. Yeah, cheese. Is hard. I can't. Yeah, cheese. So 40% said they'd struggle to give up cheese. Josh, you weren't too far off. 32% said cow's milk and 30% said eggs. Um, but yeah, yeah, there was also reports that a lot of them would struggle to go without chicken, which is interesting because I always thought it was the, maybe this is a stereotype, but I always thought it was bacon that was the big thing that everyone had. Yeah, I um, feel like cheese, could do, I, could, I could do milk as well. I find milk weird. Like I, could, I, I drink plant-based milk from time to time. Okay, I don't drink tea, I just drink coffee, but I feel like milk's all right. You can get on with... I'm the opposite and I'm the vegetarian here and I'm the one that loves the... <laughs> I can't do... I can't sub... I can't substitute my milk. Even I've tried... I've tried many a times um, when I tried my little vegan phases and I just can't. Um, milk is, for me as well, one of the hardest things to give up. Milk, cheese and chocolate. Those are like the three things that I just can't. See, yeah. it's really, really interesting because I think having... The fact that I can't consume a lot of dairy... Mm. makes it kind of I mean I've got used to alternative milk I actually think it's a lot better actually one one occasion Josh and I were out and they mixed up our orders thank goodness I'm not allergic and I only you know maybe would have slight issues um and I started drinking my coffee and I said to Josh does your coffee taste weird do you remember this Josh I do yeah and it was kind of like June June 2021 so I wouldn't say mid-covid but like Things weren't great. So I took a couple of sips. I said to Beth, I was like, you probably don't want my mug now, do you? She was like, no, I'd rather put up with the milk. But for me, I was like, this is disgusting. And it was normal, you know, well, I shouldn't say normal. I should say traditional dairy milk. Um, and then Josh was like, this is weird. <laughs> so, yeah. Just to defend myself, because I feel like I'm being painted as the arch carnival <laughs> by everyone in this podcast, like Mrs. Tweedy out of Trick and Run. Um, <laughs> and perhaps global listeners might need to look up Mrs. Tweedy. It is an excellent use of your time. Yeah, I think there just needs to be a little bit of sort of middle ground found between between both sides. A little bit of concessions, perhaps given for all that the industry, the food industry does to make itself more sustainable. Perhaps some movements need to understand that certain things aren't possible. So, for example, insects, I just think, are a brilliant way and are, are the future. They're a great way of feeding animals. They're a great way of feeding humans too. If insects are required to feed i think 10 billion people by 2050 is the estimate then i think we maybe have to consider that like we have to consider them as an option whilst i do take your point abby that they are still an animal i think it's more palatable to eat a locust than it is a cow but maybe that's just me well beth as ever as you know there are two sides to every coin and to get the other perspective on this argument we're delighted to be joined by nick allen ceo of the british meat Presses association nick how are you today good morning yes very very good thank you yeah Thank you so much for joining us. So we want to speak to you, Nick, sort of to get to the other side of, of this argument. So I'll, I'll start with a similar question. Is a vegan diet more sustainable than a meat-based one? 
Well, I think that's a very complex question, and I defy anyone to really, you know, does say that without actually clarifying what what vegetables you're eating, what uh, what your diet looks like, and what um uh, and what meats you're sort of consuming. Really, I prefer to take the line that um, a sustainable diet is actually a balanced one, and I think a, a good sustainable sort of diet is one that's got a bit, a bit of meat in it and plenty of vegetables and uh, and uh, a bit of fruit as well, and includes some dairy. And I think. Uh, going forward, I think we've got to think of it as actually that that is what a sustainable diet looks like. And in terms of, you know, we hear a lot about methane emissions from livestock, Nick. But what are some of the kind of the, the ways that the meat sector um, can become more sustainable? You know, is it sort of unwarranted that we have so much focus on methane emissions? Yeah, I mean, methane gets honed in on and, and partly because of the way it's recorded. Uh, and actually, there are some scientists that feel that because methane dissipates in the atmosphere after sort of 12 years, that actually it probably gets some um, uh, a higher emphasis than it should do. But uh, that doesn't alter the fact that as an industry, we need to concentrate on on, on reducing some methane emissions. And there's a lot of work that's been going on for some time. And I've been involved in work in, uh, along these lines since about 2007, you know, sort of um, trying trying to actually uh, sort of lower the uh, methane emissions. We know sort of well-grazed, well-managed grassland, for instance, uh, reduces the amount of uh, of methane that animals produce. There are feeds coming along. The Australians have been experimenting with sort of seaweed and presumably it's not seaweed. It's actually something in seaweed that helps that do that. And there's other other plants that actually are sort of being sort of planted around the world that actually we know can reduce methane emissions. So in time, we will actually reduce the methane emissions from sort of like grazing livestock. Mm, I mean, it, there's, I, I believe it's just 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to livestock. So there does seem to be quite a lot of kind of weight put onto that when realistically, is, is that actually a large number? Well, it doesn't really matter how large the number is or how small it is. The important thing is that we're working to reduce it. And as I say, I I started working with the industry back in 2007 on trying to, you know, sort of identify, we recognise this as a problem and start trying to reduce it. So um, whatever sort of figure you choose to go with, the important thing is that we're reducing it and working towards reducing. I think it it gets a high emphasis because it's an easy target for ruminants production. And uh, you have to sort of bear in mind that... um, behind the the plant sort of plant-based sort of food sort of products there's an enormous amount of a lot of very wealthy entrepreneurs who are sort of putting a lot of sort of money into it and a lot of money into the sort of the marketing behind it and you know so that that's mainly because there's, there's substantial profits to be made out of this you know so so you know yes it, it, it i think it does get villainized a little, little bit and it's an easy target for us I just want to take a moment to admire Beth's modesty in, in pulling that figure out of the egg. And I think it's about 14.5%. Beth, Beth absolutely knew it was 14.5%. Very well researched indeed. Yeah, um, I, I should add it's even less in this country because, of course, we've got a really good um, grass growing sort of uh, us climate. So it's, it, we think we believe it's even less in this country. No, no, fair, fair play. Um, Nick, you just mentioned the word villainisation. It's, it's actually a, a word I've got in the next question because I, I think it's a really important point to make do you think there's a tendency to villainize the agricultural sector and and more specifically the meat sector in the fight against climate change i mean for example we know that food waste is a massive contributor to carbon emissions 
That, that's right. But I, I think I come back to this point I'm making. A lot of this is about marketing. And there's some big businesses around the world that have identified that, you know, so that there's there's a lot of profits to be made by adding value to uh, vegetables or products, whereas actually the margins on meat are very, very sort of tight. So there's some massive sort of marketing sort of programs sort of going on and, and quite sort of, you know, behind the scenes and undercover and, sort of, and in quite a sort of dark way that is actually, uh, yeah, tending to sort of villainize it. And, and um, you know, sort of, uh, and, and I think as an industry, we're, we're very aware of, you know, where, where the challenge is there and, and we need to just rely on the science and sort of prove the science and sort of stand our ground mm-hmm. so in terms of meat eating do you think there is a place for you know eating less meat but perhaps higher quality or locally produced you know or, or seasonal meat products i i think people should think about what they're eating and, and, and sort of you know, how they're eating it. And I'm, I'm a great fan of encouraging people to cook from fresh. And whether you it's, that's that's less meat, uh, I, I think the more important thing is actually that uh, people cook from fresh, whether that be some meat or vegetables, because I think that's been, become well established as the, the, the healthier way forward. And I, I have great concerns about, you know, it's all processed food, really, and so what goes into it. And, and certainly on, on the you know sort of plant protein sort of a meat replacement um side of things like that there's a massive amount of sort of processing sort of going into it and i have concerns about because of the lack of lack of sort of cooking sort of skills and lack of interest in sort of cooking in the western world that we rely more on processed food really and and i I think whether it's it's less food i I think really the focus should be on actually cooking from fresh really and certainly local makes sense because you know you're not transporting it around the world as well yeah yeah absolutely i think i think the idea is that we we sort of look for the most convenient option sometimes Mm. and i actually you know it wasn't probably until like my early 20s I'd say that I actually really got into cooking and actually it was like this is really enjoyable particularly you know if you had a glass of wine (laughs) (laughs) Beth you've done really well it took me to the age of 40 before I (laughs) (laughs) so you're you're, you're well ahead it was only when I was about 40 that I really got into cooking yeah yeah so I think you know I do think it's just uh, we live in an era of convenience I think that's the way to describe it that that's right and with that comes this uh, reliance on 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 proce- food processing and and inevitably that means adding ingredients that aren't, aren't necessarily natural and what we'd uh, be looking for they're more for you know preserving the food and ensuring it's sort of safe really and that's a, as i say i'd encourage anyone to concentrate on cooking from fresh really absolutely Nick. And one thing I, i've heard and i think beth's probably heard as well from from the meat industry in, in the last couple of years is that idea of well actually the meat sector is not the problem. You just need to buy a better quality meat or buy meat that's more sustainably produced. And, and a noble sentiment, though it is, a big concern that I have is that it's just not affordable for the average person. Um, free-range chicken is the example I use. It's just significantly more expensive to buy a free-range chicken than it is to buy chicken that is not free-range. How, as a sector, do we, do we ensure that good quality responsibly sustainably sourced meat is affordable for everyone and is an option for everyone 
yeah, I, I think there are different cuts of meat that are cheaper. And I come, come back to your sort of cooking sort of skills, really, and uh, the interest in sort of cooking, really, because if you take sort of beef mince, virtually regardless of whether it's uh, uh, sort of house produced, it still sells remarkably sort of cheaply, really. And it's uh, because uh, it's, it's using some sort of bits of the animal that, you know, so once they're, once they're minced up. So you get that nutritional benefit from eating meat it's, it's quite a low sort of price really but I, I think as a society as a general thing we, we should focus on not making food affordable but making sure that everyone can afford food and that's that's sort of probably getting into quite a, a philosophical debate really but uh, I, I think it you know so, as I say society that's what we should focus on is making sure people can afford food rather than actually trying to make it as cheap as possible and I, I think one of our downfalls over the years has been the fact that actually food has been too cheap and therefore undervalued. I think you're right and that cuts of meat argument is a really in- interesting one isn't it because if you go to sort of other, other cultures other countries um, different from the UK you do see different parts of the animal being being consumed on a regular basis that perhaps we might not eat in the UK or and it's maybe something that we've got to adopt. That, that that's right, and we're, we're, most of our meat exports are, are probably a cuts of meat that we just our consumer isn't interested in in eating over here. But on the continent and further afield, they they do utilise them and sort of value them. And and of course, they're very often those, those cuts of meat are very nutritious as well, and in, in different ways. There is actually a initiative, a bit like the January called Organuary. I don't think. <laughs> don't think many people know about it but it's meant to promote the you know consuming organ meats which we don't normally I mean I am probably guilty of this I sort of shudder at the thought of of some of those kind of cuts of meats but maybe I shouldn't you know I think there's lots of things that it's just because it's not what we're used to but actually it might be totally delicious Um, and if it's yeah Look, I I think so. Yes, some of these. I I mean, personally, I I I love kidney and I love liver. They they they're sort of fantastic. Um, it's a fantastic taste to it, and really, I think it's a question of people sort of being a little bit sort of braver. Uh, Admittedly, there are some things you know that um. Uh, I marvel at in other parts of the world they, they eat and, 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 and even I sort of uh, uh, sort of cringe at it. But it, it is all, if you're in a poorer part of the world and you have to utilise the whole animal and make use of everything you have got because food is in short supply, then that's what happens. And we've had the luxury in this country of having uh, lots of food available 24-7. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting point. Um, and and on that, we probably won't see you on you know doing a bush tucker trial then, Nick. I guess. <laughs> no, no, I, I I've, eat, I've eaten insects in China <laughs> and and I've travelled the world. And I've eaten a fair few different things actually, and uh, I'll, I'll do it. I'm always up for tasting something and trying something. But um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about progress. You know, what progress has the meat sector made recently in terms of you know hitting those sustainability goals? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's some some standouts of work sort of going on. I mean, all, all our members I know are embarking on, on work with their farmers to, re, you know, work, work on reducing sort of um, emissions on the farm. But actually in, in the plants as well, they've done an awful lot to sort of make sure that our water recycling, maximising their sort of use of energy or minimising their use of energy rather, and also cutting down waste. And, uh, you know, there's almost across the board, they've probably been uh, sort of, 
a 30% reduction in, in the waste within their sort of plants. Sort of, the, you know, it's working in sort of different ways. And we touched on food waste earlier. And of course, unfortunately, most of the food waste takes place in the in the home. But that doesn't mean that we, we can't avoid it in terms of what we're sort of doing in the, in, in the plants, really. So there's a lot of work, you know, and there's been some successes sort of so far. And... Uh, there's a lot of work going on. I think the encouraging thing is that almost on a daily basis, you see and hear about more research projects taking place, not funded by sort of government or universities, but by funded by industry looking at things things that they can do. So I think there's some really encouraging uh, work going on out there. Um, long way to go as the whole, you know, and sort of the, uh, as everyone's got to do it in every phase of this, this battle against climate change, that we've got a long way to go yet. You know, sort of in an even 2050 sounds a long way away for everyone talking about getting to net zero and things like that but there's a huge amount of work got to take place in that time yeah absolutely I do think you know you mentioned there the industry doing a lot I do think there is a a tendency for the onus to go on to industry and you know I think it does do a lot in terms of trying to tackle you know climate change and, and meet sustainability goals so you know a shout out to our industry here for for you know some really hard work I, I'm really impressed. I mean, we did a survey recently and took stock of all our members and what they were doing. And, and in fact, we'll, we in this next year, we'll be sort of in, in increasing our sort of activity in this area. But uh, it was really impressive when you you sort of you know went to them and did a sort of survey of what um, the work that is going on. It's it's quite phenomenal. And, and there's certainly the important thing is that they're all taking it seriously and doing something about it. Absolutely. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that I am usually a bringer of, of doom and cynicism, um, and I will continue that trend today. We've, dis- we've discussed this a lot, me, Beth, and, and, and Abby, in terms of what happens to certain communities if we do go vegan. And there are a hell of a lot of communities around the world that rely on animal-based industry, whether that's fishing, whether that's rearing cattle or livestock. Do you think there's a risk that, that entire communities lose a way of life if, if we do go vegan as, as a society? I, I think it's not just a way of life. I, I think they find, find it very difficult to even exist in, in certain things. It was really interesting watching the United Nations Food Systems Summit sort of going on in, in the autumn. I don't know how closely you followed it. But we, we, it's an international set of um, our debates that went on around the world. And uh, when, when the first ones we started listening into were very much dominated by uh, sort of Western European and sort of American uh, sort of people and there's very much a we've got to get rid of livestock production so completely and then as the debates have widened and the African countries sort of started to sort of come into it everyone started to realize it is not realistic to you know expect sort of some parts of the world to actually manage without livestock where does the fertility for their soil come from where you know where you know they're, they're not uh, in the western world here you know when we want some fertilizer we we phone up the local merchant and, and the farmer you know has it has it delivered you can't do that in the middle of africa you're relying on sort of livestock there and and um it's all part of the system so it's not i don't think it's just i think it goes deeper in a way of life joshua it, it's it's actually a you know can, can they even exist in parts of the world without eating meat? Mm, yeah, and, and having livestock. So. so, Nick, I want to ask. There's, there's so let's take it for example the rewild scheme. There's been a lot of a backlash about that from farmers saying 
that it actually might bring more food security issues. It might also sort of penalise, you know, small farms as well. So how can we create kind of policies or initiatives to promote a more environmentally friendly kind of sector whilst not punishing, you know, farmers uh, and or meat producers? Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen the new agricultural policy do a, a, a lot more of almost challenging individual farmers. What can they do on their farm? Whereas what it seems to me they've done is, is they've taken a third of the budget and they're going to spend it on, you know, 300,000 hectares of re- rewildings or somewhere in the, sort of in, in the country. You know, I, I farm myself, actually, and, and I have parts of the farm that we sort of put over to environmental improvements, and, you know, so, and to encourage bird life and wildlife and uh you know i'd have liked to have seen it sort of done on a much more individual basis so that every farmer had the opportunity to tap into these schemes and actually do something on their own sort of farm rather than you know it all going into one place really you know which is which is what the scene seems to be happening so i i'm disappointed at the moment with the new uh agricultural policy that's sort of come out from what we've seen of it there was the leaving europe there was a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate to the world how you could combine environmental improvement with with food production and i don't think our current agricultural policy looks as though it's going to be that revolutionary or that exciting and uh, and really take up that challenge it's a really interesting interesting point nick i suppose that the, the jury's out on that isn't it we'll have to see how how we progress but i think a lot of people in the industry do share your disappointment as well from from what we've been hearing um one last question for you, and it's one that I, I'm really interested to hear what you've got to say. Cultivated meat or, or cultured meat, do you see a future for the meat industry in, in cellular agriculture? And the other side of that question is, is it a threat to the meat industry or is it a solution to a lot of the industry's problems? It's a fascinating development, which I, I, I've been watching sort of closely since it. So I, from my perspective, the, the, the jury's still, still out on it. Um, it could well be the future, you know, or, or could well be part of the future. I don't think it will be uh, take over completely, but it could well be a, a part in the future. For my part, the, the important thing is here is that this is a new science coming along and you don't rush into it without absolutely being sure that it's sort of safe. If you think what you're doing with cultivated meat, you're taking just a, a few you know, cells and you know, expanding them in- exponentially into sort of quite, quite a, a large amount of product, which is uh, exciting. It's a very, you know, sort of, you know, sort of fascinating sort of thing to do, really. But boy, if you've got to make sure what you start with is absolutely right. <laughs> and, you know, our, our, what we've been sort of saying to the government and, and to the authorities, you know, that th- this needs to look be, be looked at very closely, but don't rush into it, you know, make sure if it's right and it's it and it's it's safe and there's not any sort of disasters coming down to that. You know, I'm thinking here of actually some of the, some of the allergies that have crept in over the years and things like that. You've got you've got to make sure that, you know, when you're just starting with a few cells that there's nothing in there that hasn't got down the track in a few years time doesn't create some problems so it's a fascinating development I wouldn't like to say whether it's the future or not but it, it's certainly I, I'm, I'm not dissing it and sort of saying you know it should be scrapped completely because uh, it could well help you know supply um, this planet with food and let's face it for every two of us on this planet now by 2050 there'll be three of us uh, we've got a lot of feeding of people to do
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so interesting about what you said about emerging allergens, because we are seeing that. And interestingly, we're seeing it in the uh, protein sector, aren't we? Because, you know, we're sort of consuming ingredients that we, you know, have previously consumed in small amounts that we're now eating in larger amounts. And there's, you know, sort of emerging allergens coming to that. And of course, there's the whole thing about, you know, pea protein having a very similar composition to peanuts. So it's interesting that, you know, I didn't even consider that about the cultivated meat sector. There is maybe an allergen aspect to it. Yeah, you've got to be careful not to rush into science. You know, genetic modification a few years ago was a, was a wonderful potential sort of, you know, d- development that actually was going to help increase food supplies. But because it's rushed onto the market too soon before people really understood uh, some of the wider consequences, you know, it, it A, has got a bad sort of press and, 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 and secondly, it's got, caused some problems, really. So, I mean, certainly we, we've been doing some uh, work recent, recently with the Natasha project, you know, on the, on the, on the back of... Um, uh, what happened there, and encourage our members to uh, sort of in, in, engage with that, and um, you know, so sort of, you know, make make sure everyone's got a good understanding of, uh, of the challenges there, because uh, certainly these allergies, are, it's a it's a growing problem. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Nick. You've been so insightful. It's been such a joy to have you on the show. No problem at all, Beth. Any time. Well, I don't know about you two, but I thought that was a really, really interesting interview. Really good to hear the other side of, of, of the coin. I can hear Abby twitching in her seat across London already. Full disclosure for listeners, Abby is um, a vegetarian, Abby. I think you dabble in veganism. Yes. Yes, a vegetarian mainly, yeah. So let's start with you. What do you think, Abby? What did you think of Nick's, Nick's comments? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did think a lot. I, I do completely appreciate and respect where he's coming from, and I do understand what he's saying but I I wouldn't admit there is a lot that I disagreed with or I had something to kind of add in or just shaking my head a little bit behind behind the camera but but yeah I mean I look forward to kind of hearing what you guys thought of it it's look it's just such a nuanced debate isn't it it's it's so difficult and I I think having worked in the industry for the last couple of years anyone that says well it's easy to just go vegan is is quite frankly incorrect and anyone that thinks that the way the path that we're on at the moment is the way to go is also incorrect. Best favourite word is moderation, and I fear that it does apply to this debate as well. A, a few really important things that, that Nick brought up. I, I think the stuff he said about sort of using the whole of the animal, like head to tail, that's that's crucial, isn't it? I mean, the amount of meat that we throw away, I mean, it does sound as if it's something that I didn't know, but it does sound as if we do export a lot, which is good. But I mean, take a if you take a cow that's been slaughtered. I mean, how much of that do we actually eat? I mean, we eat the traditional. Uh, I know, I know, but we have to get we have to get grizzly. <laughs> Certain parts of them we just don't eat. I mean, I, again, full disclosure. My dad's a chef, so we were quite lucky growing up. We used to sort of eat all weird and wonderful cuts of meat. We used to eat pork cheeks often, which I have never not seen recently, wow. and they're absolutely delicious. And I dare say they would have been thrown away if we hadn't eaten them because it's not something we eat. So I think mouth to tail is is a it's something we really should be encouraging if we are to stick with me, which I think, I think me and Beth think we have to. I think Abby disagrees, but. Yeah. I mean, if I can respond to that, if you, if people who are eating me, I do, I do completely agree that if you are killing an animal, I do, I do agree that you should not let any of it go to waste um, for many reasons, not just like in terms of like money, in terms of waste, in terms of sustainability, all of that stuff, but also if you are killing an actual animal, I do 
it doesn't really make sense to let anything go to waste if you can eat it. But I mean, to me personally, like Beth was saying earlier, it sounds like a bush tracker trial to me, <laughs> just all of this. But but <laughs> I mean, yeah, waste not, want not, right? Mm, I think what was a point that he mentioned that was particularly interesting was the, the processed yeah. one. So everything is processed. Everything is processed because it goes through a process. You know, it, it could be... And, you know, I think unless it kind of falls off a tree, <laughs> mm. everything goes through a process. The problem is ultra processed food. And what he mentioned was it's interesting that there are obviously a lot of people tooting, you know, plant based is really healthy for you. But the answer to, you know, moving aside from the sustainability debate here and going to the health debate if we are to eat ultra processed plant based food, that's not going to be any better for us than ultra processed meat. I know I'm digressing here slightly, but I think it's important, you know, that we we need to look after the health of the planet, but we also need to look after our health as well at the same time. And I think that was just a really interesting comment. What do you guys think on that note? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Beth. Um, I can't remember who said it to me, but plant based chicken nuggets are still chicken nuggets. Like they're still not very good for you. Just because you take the meat out doesn't mean that it's good for you. That's a conversation that I think the plant-based sector has to have because just because it's plant-based, just because it's vegan approved doesn't always mean it's healthy. And I think, and myself included, you fall into the trap of picking ultra-processed food up from the supermarket shelf. You see vegan, you think, oh yeah, it's much better for me than the meat alternative. And it isn't always the case. So yeah, I thought that was a really, really important point that Nick made. I, I, I must profess, I don't know the stats behind it, but surely ultra processed food is also worse for the environment because it goes through so many more manufacturing processes that all require heat energy people i don't know i'm just clutching at straws there as usual but surely surely ultra processed food is is, is more harmful to the environment than than things that fall off trees as beth said although in abby's defense cows don't fall mm. off trees. they don't no they don't <laughs> <laughs> and also to go off what you were saying Josh and also you Beth about like health wise I think there are advancements in that happening all the time in the meat free yes it's definitely there are certain things that aren't healthy like when I first started as a vegetarian I was told to stop by my parents because I was literally living off like chips and things like that like super unhealthy things just because I couldn't find anything that was that was healthy I mean other than you know things falling off trees other than vegetables and fruit and all of that stuff I couldn't find anything a sustainable kind of thing to keep me going any food so I kind of just lived off really unhealthy stuff so but having said that like 10-15 years on there's a lot of food now that are like infused with vitamins and minerals and like all this stuff that you can find in meat products and I'm not I'm not saying that every kind of vegan vegetarian food is healthy and it's good for the environment but there are definitely um changes happening and at quite a fast pace i think that make it more more sustainable and more healthy for us so i'd say that would be that would be my i, Abby, I definitely there. think we eat too much meat <laughs> as a society mm. I, I totally think and also you know what nick was saying we are we're spoiled we are um you know we and and the convenience thing i think the convenience element that he was speaking about that's why milk kits are so popular at the minute isn't it i mean mm. I was looking at milk kits the other day but the issue is expense not everyone can afford that kind of thing exactly. you know and also not everyone can afford I, I did have to disagree about the price thing 
mm-hmm. uh, there because I think meat is expensive. I, you know, I'd, if I go into my local supermarket, um, the free range stuff, as Josh you always said, it is always more expensive. And sometimes you're like, well, I don't have that disposable income to buy that. So I'm going to get the cheaper stuff that probably isn't so healthy for me, that probably the animal maybe not has been treated so well, that maybe it's not so sustainable. But sometimes that's the only option for someone. I will tell you something, actually. I probably don't know if I should admit this on the podcast, <laughs> but I will anyway. I went shopping the other day and I bought two of the biggest sweet potatoes like they were huge like you know a quarter the size of my head kind of thing one sweet potato managed to get me two portions of mash it was great anyway they cost me there must have been some sort of error they cost me a penny a penny a penny i don't know what happened but i was like that is a bargain wow. <laughs> be careful what you say beth i'd speak to a lawyer before you start saying things like that on the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um are you sure just on, on the expense <laughs> front i mean i i will probably add to listeners around the world that sweet potatoes do not cost one pence for two in the united kingdom they are more expensive than that now, they are cheaper um <laughs> I, we hear so much about less meat better meat don't we from from the meat sector it's a uh, i remember going to an nfu conference virtually of course last year um that was the primary line touted by the NFU. Oh, well, people have got too used to cheap meat and they should be eating less meat. And I just thought it was such an out-of-touch comment to make. I remember growing I mean, we were by no means poor growing up, but we weren't awash with money. We used to buy free chickens for £10 from the supermarket. Those chickens weren't free range. But they would do all of us for a roast dinner on a Sunday. The bones would then be made into a stock that was used in soup on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then we'd have chicken sandwiches for lunch throughout the week. So... Three chickens could feed an entire family for ten pounds. You can't buy, you can't feed an entire family for a, for a tenner if you're buying free range or organic. It's just not possible. So I think the the problem comes is, is that we've got to get past them. We've got to make it cheaper. I, I can hear Abby saying already, "We well, don't eat meat." Then, and you're absolutely, you're absolutely spot on, Abby. But as you admitted to earlier in your life, going vegetarian, going vegan does require significant more time, imagination, and education, and that's not something that working yeah. people always have especially time they don't have time to construct menus and, con- and make sure that we're getting all of the nutrients and vitamins that we require because a lot of people are working every hour god sends to keep a roof over their heads so i'm sorry i'm getting on my on my soapbox and and putting the world to rights as i always do in these episodes but it's initially really close to my heart because i think it's just so easy for people in lofty positions to tell people that aren't in lofty positions how to live their lives Oh, wow. <laughs> I hate <laughs> I hear you Josh um but ha- you are right because even vegetarian food and vegan food is more expensive than generally I have seen and it is in terms of because I don't have any family or any friends that are vegetarian maybe one one friend that's a veggie whenever I go out or whenever I go to the supermarket or wherever I go my bill is always bigger and not because I eat more or anything like that like it's purely we could get the exact same thing or we could be out at the supermarket and just get like a weekly shop or whatever and the bill is always bigger just because veggie food I've seen and I mean it is a fact and it's the same with healthy food in general costs more so I I do hear that and especially even things like a healthy lunch like a quick ready healthy lunch in comparison to just a microwave meal costs so much more so when you when you do look at it like that I hear you and I do agree that something needs to change in terms of prices of these these products. Okay, before we come to a close with this podcast, I, I also want to get your guys' thoughts on cultivated meat. What are we thinking? You know, Nick was sort of saying like 
you know, it's an interesting kind of innovation, but obviously we need to kind of tread with caution and not rush it. I really agree there. What what do we think? Because, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because obviously cultivated meat means, you know, extracting the cells from a live animal, but you're not killing the animal then. But is it still right to extract cells from an animal? At, what are your thoughts, Josh? Well, I'm really interested to hear what Abby's got to say about this from a vegetarian standpoint, but I'm well up for it, Beth. I mean, why not? Like, let's let's do it. Okay. I mean, as long as the animal's not in any real pain having a, a muscle biopsy, which I don't think they would be, it's, consider- it's considerable less pain than death, mm-hmm. that's that's for sure. Let's do it. Like, I, I'm so excited to try a cultivated meat. Beth, I think you have, haven't you? Did you tell me a couple of weeks ago that you've tried cultured meat? That is totally oh, made up. No, no. My um, I have a, I had a someone that worked with me on new food, um, previously. I'm really sorry to hear my cat meow. Yeah. He's like, Cute. he's like, I have stuff to say about this. <laughs> I'm an animal. <laughs> Give me my opinion. Um, no, I had a colleague that worked on new food, and I believe he. God, I'm gonna get the story wrong, and he's gonna tell me off. I believe he tried cultivated meat when he went to a show. However, the story could go. Beth, I saw some cultivated meat and it looked gross. <laughs> I don't know whether he was brave enough to try it. I'm sure there was an option to. But they're eating it in Singapore. It's commercially yeah. available in Singapore. So it's gone through, they've approved it. It's gone through food safety checks. I mean, obviously the regulation is completely different, you know, to other parts of the world. So I, but I do think we will see it here in the UK. Abby, what are your thoughts on this? So I I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I think it is a positive move. Um, I have actually seen documentaries on this, and I have seen the fact that they the animals aren't hurt. Well, the yeah, they can literally pick, pluck a feather off a chicken, pluck a feather off a chicken, take the take the hormones and things off that who produce their meat products, and. I, I don't see a problem with that. However, I have seen vegans disagree with that as well because it does come from an animal, which makes sense to me. But as a vegetarian, as long as the animal's not hurt, as long as nothing bad comes to the animal from it, I don't see a problem with it. I think it's a great next step, a really, really great advancement, to be fair. Just quickly, Beth, before we finish, I think the point I just mentioned there is a really important one in this debate. There is a risk that we get a bit ideological in this debate. We get kind of like, well, I'm a meat eater and that's why I believe in. Well, I'm vegan, that's why I believe in. Surely we have to look at it in practical terms. I, I think if you disagree with cultured meat, if we can prove the animal is unharmed and we can prove that it's sustainable and we can prove that there's no disadvantage to livestock at all by doing this, if you disagree with meat that comes from animals, if you disagree with cultured meat because it comes from an animal, that's just a bit, that's not practical, is it? That's just sort of, disagreeing for disagreeing's sake i don't know maybe that's unfair but i don't know yeah i i do as well i think i'm, I'm going to end this podcast on the note of of what nick said there in terms of you know two people become three mouths to feed i think we've got to we've got to find solutions where and it's a difficult one it's solutions where food is sustainable food is healthy and food is accessible you know that's three very large problems that aren't going to be solved overnight but I do think that the industry is working towards solving that um and perhaps cultivated meat is is going to be you know uh, a part of that solution 
Um, perhaps not. We'll have to see, you know. Um, but I, I trust the scientists. I am, um, you know. I think, I think we will find a solution. Maybe it's going to be something completely different. Maybe it's going to be something we haven't even heard of yet, and we'll be doing a <laughs> podcast on that in a few years' time. And I totally, you know, I completely see both sides of this argument here. I think, you know, we wanted to ask the question, "What is more sustainable?" I don't think we can answer that question just yet. But you know what I'm going to say. I do. Yeah, I can hear it resonating through the air already from down the road. All things in moderation. Someone's got a new food (laughs) bingo there. Yeah, yeah. So this is my catchphrase. If you are new to the new food podcast, Um, I say it all the time. I think I think it's all about moderation. I think I think it's good if we start eating more. You know, um, plants. But then again, you know, you've got to think about things like biodiversity. You know, you can't just eat the set. You can't just eat broccoli. You've got to eat, you know, lots of varied things. You can't just eat meat. But then, you know, it's we're not going to solve this. I, I, I think I think we can say that, you know, very safely. We're not going to solve this. But do you know what? I've had a really good time during this episode. I think we've covered some really interesting ground. We certainly have. We certainly have, Beth. Yep, absolutely. And we hope you listeners have enjoyed this too. Uh, We'll be back shortly with a new podcast. But in the meantime, make sure you check out our website for lots of content, uh, newfoodmagazine.com. There's lots of stuff going on. We've got a big event coming up as well, Food Integrity 2022. Lots of stuff to be getting your teeth into, pun totally intended there. Thank you very much. Good morning, good evening, good night.